Thank you for tuning in to the 167th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always. I want to thank you for tuning in, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Being recorded from Buffalo, New York on a Tuesday afternoon. Going to have a great show for you today. Going to have David Ramil on. Covers the Miami Heat and hosts the Locked On Heat podcast. Had a great interview and conversation with David. We talked about everything from ranging from how things are going to look in Orlando. He's been at the Disney uh, Worldwide Center of Sports, the complex that the players are going to be playing at. So we talked about that for about 10, 15 minutes. We got into the story of how Pat Riley lured LeBron from Cleveland to Miami when Pat Riley had to show him those rings, right? right that, that shiny little jewelry. Got into Jimmy Butler, Dwayne Wade, and much, much more everything Miami Heat. And can the Heat beat the Bucks? We also talked about that as the Miami Heat are the four seed and the Bucks would be the one so they could potentially meet up in the second round. So great interview by David. Again, I want to thank David for coming on the pod. Appreciate it. But before we get to David, I'm going to have him on in just a bit. I, I, I want to talk about what's been going on in our country. So obviously, if you haven't been living under a rock... Uh, there's been protests in every major city, it seems, across the country, the United States of America, with the unjust murder of George Floyd. And it's kind of permeated to the NFL because of people, also if you've been living under a rock, right? Colin Kaepernick originated kneeling for police brutality. And now, given the circumstances of what's going on in the world, players in the NFL are saying they're going to kneel. Now, Here's what I want to say, because I, I don't want to get into whether you should kneel for the National Anthem or you shouldn't. I think if you want to stand, stand. God bless you. Uh, you know, if you don't want to, you don't want to. And, and I personally, I don't care, right? I don't care. But I'm probably in the minority with that. So here's what I'm going to say. We, we're in an interesting time in America. <laughs> like, just Twitter has been crazy. The KKK was trending on Twitter. People were talking about Terry Crews, the actor, on Twitter. Like, you're just crazy stuff. It seems every little thing is being picked and parsed about what's going on in the country. Mark Wahlberg. Hate crimes. Trending on Twitter. And I, I do want to talk to this, and I, and I want people to know this. While it is the player's right to kneel, I, I, I want to show, show you some stats to just put this in perspective. Because I, I, I think... Stats and uh, ratings, it shows the perspective of what people are thinking. First of all, don't believe necessarily everything you hear in social media, how people feel. 42% of the world is on social media, is on social media, right? That's not a lot. 42%. If we want to shrink it down to this country, I, I didn't look it up, but probably cut that in half. Let's just say 20%. Not a whole lot of people are on social media in the grand scheme of things, even though I think all of us in our own little bubbles and our own little social, mini social media communities think that everybody's on social media. That's not the case. That, that, that's not the case. 42% of people in the world are on social media. Now, in 2019, Fox News got 2.5 million viewers for their prime time slots. MSNBC got 1.78. Now, why is this important? Guess what an NFL preseason game gets? The highest rated NFL preseason game in 2019. Guess what it got? Right? And I just want to state this again. So Fox News, their primetime slot, 2.5 million viewers. MSNBC, primetime slot, 1.78 million viewers. And guess what the highest preseason game in the NFL got in 2019? Same year. 5 million. Not even close. Folks, you can tell a lot by ratings and in terms of what people are interested in. Don't believe everything you hear and on, on social media. Most sports fans, they don't care about politics. That's why Fox News and MSNBC, 
aren't beating the highest rated NFL preseason game. Like, quite literally, if you if you want to add it up, 2.5, 3, I'm doing this on the fly, my math has always been bad. Let's just call it, it's, it's probably, it's about a 4, 4 million plus, right? 4 million plus, not even, it's like 3, 385 or something like that, which would be if you added MSNBC and Fox. And it still doesn't beat the NFL's highest rated pre-season game. We're not talking about regular season games, we're not talking about AFC and NFC Championship games, which gets like, which AFC and NFC Championship games gets like a 20, and the Super Bowl, got, Lord have mercy, gets about a 50. <laughs> so, people tune into sports to escape politics. And that's why I've tried very hard amid all of this going on to stick to sports and, and to talk about sports. Because I assume that's why people tune into this to hear my opinion on sports. Not necessarily to hear my opinion on politics, but I want to say this one. If NFL players choose to kneel and people, and it's been talked about, the ratings of 2016 were not as good when Colin Kaepernick and the whole kneeling thing happened and there's been a little bit of a bounce back. Know your clientele. Not all fans are going to like that. And it doesn't mean that they don't care about police brutality. It just means after a long day at work, they want to drink a beer and listen to, and, and tune into the football game, Right? They don't necessarily want to talk about, you know, the real world because they live in the real world their whole life. You see? So I think it's important to remember that. The 10 people in the stand, this is the stands, right? They're all drunk. They're going to the game to have a good time. Not necessarily there to hear political speech and to hear how you feel about social injustice. And I do lastly want to say this. I hope everybody that isn't going to kneel for the national anthem, I hope they vote. I also, I, I hope that they're doing social programs. Maybe there's something that somebody could do to start a ride-along program to allow police and um, kids in disenfranchised communities to get to know each other and kind of see what a police officer goes in their day-to-day -day life. And just trying to figure out other ideas. Because I hope if you're kneeling, you're also doing other stuff. That would be my message. That's what I'd like to see. Because I just don't want to see people kneel and just be like, I'm kneeling and I'm protesting. Okay? And what comes next? What else are you doing? That's what I want to know. And that's what I personally care about. And if you're going to kneel, you're going to alienate a segment of your fan base. So you need to make sure that you're kneeling. At least you're kneeling. You're doing something to promote change as well. And I, I just want to put that out there. Now, I also want to get to this. So, there hasn't been really sports going on, right? Been a couple of uh, soccer's going on in Europe, and the UFC's had a couple of uh, cards, right? So, this is what Daryl's been doing. I've really just been running, uh, lifting a little, podcasting, uh, chilling at home, appreciating life. And one of the things that uh, I was doing uh, last night was I was looking at a uh, old Hall of Fame speeches. I saw Steve Nash's Hall of Fame speech, Jason Kidd's Hall of Fame speech, Allen Iverson's, Yao Ming's. I uh, For the NFL, I watched uh, Shannon Sharp's, Deion Sanders. It was great. And I also saw the 2003 draft. And what I think was very interesting about listening to all those, because some of those I haven't even seen. Like, I never, I never watched Allen Iverson's uh, Hall of Fame speech. But when you do it, you're able to kind of see the moment when you look back now and you're kind of like, it's crazy how things change when, when you listen to people talk. For example, Jason Kidd. So Jason Kidd goes on a list and he thinks every owner he's ever had, then he gets to the Knicks and he doesn't thank his owner. That's a shot at Dolan. <laughs> that is a shot at Dolan. It's also crazy to see other things when you see uh, the 2003 draft. Famously, that has LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Darko Milicic. Uh, Darko Milicic was taken uh, second overall. You have Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. And you see Dwayne Wade getting interviewed and they're asking about his wife. And it's like, oh, now he's married to Gabrielle Union. It's just crazy to think how much sports and how much these people's lives change when you go back four or five, even in the case of the 03 draft, 17 years. And it makes me think, what are we going to be saying 17 years from now from what's going on right now in terms of the sports world? I found that interesting, uh, and it's just something to look forward to. Now, kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, I'm going to have David Ramil on the show. Kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk.
Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, David Ramil. He covers the Miami Heat and is the host of the Locked on Heat podcast. How you doing, David? I'm doing well. Now, the first question I have to ask you, right, is so the NBA is canceled because of Corona. It just now was reported like earlier today by uh, Adrian Wojnarowski for ESPN that reportedly there will be a meeting with all the uh, Board of Governors on the NBA to see if... uh, well, they're going to make this happen. They're going to have a season that's been reported to be in Orlando, 22 teams. How do you feel about the whole thing, and how are you? Ex- and how excited are you to potentially have NBA basketball back? Well, I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant about the whole planet, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I just I feel like it's a little rushed. I'm, I'm conflicted because I, I feel like they're going to be putting players, coaches, trainers, whoever is involved in the training in the traveling party at somewhat of an unnecessary risk. And I know that they're going to move forward with at least a loose idea that they're going to be able to maintain a bubble, that they're going to be able to test people regularly and ensure that nobody gets infected or anything along those lines. That all sounds great in theory, but I'm just not sure if it's worth it. And then moreover, it does feel like a lot of a a cash grab, like they're trying to do whatever they can to resume the season so that they can recoup as much money as possible because they are and have continued to lose a lot of money over the last few months. And so I, I see all that at the same time, I I can't deny that I'm excited about the possibility of, of covering NBA basketball games within the next month or two. And I mean, I I've missed watching regular season games. I've missed the excitement of the playoffs. Uh, It's not just the heat, but watching all, you know, 16 teams competing in the playoffs and knowing uh, that things can change so much and seeing, you know, great players rise to the challenge. All those things that we come to assume are, are normal as part of the playoffs. We're missing out on that. I mean, we should be right in the middle of watching the NBA Finals. And instead, we're just looking at Twitter on a daily basis and, and trying to see, you know, what the latest news is regarding the, the resumption of the NBA season. And so it's a little difficult for me. I, like I said, I'm conflicted because on one hand, I, I, I just not sure if the risk is necessary. I'm almost... I'd say I'm leaning more towards canceling the season outright and then just kind of restarting at a later date um, next season and just putting a, putting the, the, a stop to the 2019-20 season until such time as they have a, a foolproof plan in place for resuming games and uh, possibly even allowing fans to attend those games. Because, I mean, that's the reality is that right now, we I just don't see a future where fans can even attend games. Uh, so it's a, it's a very tricky situation. I am, like I said, though, however, looking forward to watching games being played and, and seeing what that's like. I've been at the proposed site. I've, I've actually covered uh, the Junior NBA World Championship there on, on a couple of occasions. So I know what that tournament feel is like at that complex and, and how you know, far removed it is from the rest of society because the, the Orlando bubble and specifically the Walt Disney World bubble, it's, I mean, it's a huge area. What We think of one theme park, but there are several theme parks on this Walt Disney World campus. There are lots of hotels and resorts and just miles and miles of space in between places. And so when you get to the ESPN wide world of sports zone, that's like far away from everything. And you actually have to, you know, walk a considerable amount of distance just to get from your parking space to the, the actual hardcore facilities where the games were being played at the HP Pavilion. Um, so it's it's an interesting situation there. I'm kind of curious to see how it all plays out. And uh, at the same time, uh, I'm just kind of a little hesitant to see that, you know, hopefully safety is, is the paramount concern for the league and, and the teams involved. Now, and you mentioned too, like maybe one of your concerns might be, you know, the testing, right? You have players, coaches, uh staff and all that that you need to you know put on what you're going to need to put on to have uh the nba back so do you think that maybe the 22 because it's reported right now that it's going to be 22 teams and then maybe the fact that they still want to kind of because you mentioned eking out the rest of that money for the regular season tv contracts uh they're gonna have a little bit of regular season i think do you think maybe that they should cut that a little bit down well i just it seems like it's such a weird way like i was just looking at the heat schedule just you know just because that's the team i cover and you know of the 16 games that they were going to play out, or actually, I'm sorry, 17 games that they were going to play out if the regular season had just gone on as planned, nine of those games would have been against 
you know, inferior sub 500 teams the Knicks, Bulls, Hornets. Uh, I can't recall the, the, uh, the fourth team right now. And then one game against the Raptors, those nine games won't be played. So if this proposed schedule goes forward the way it is, Miami is going to be facing eight very difficult opponents for the rest of their quote unquote regular season. And so, I mean, that's going to be the reality for every team that's involved. And we're trying to create this opportunity of involving additional teams, those those you know, six additional teams, in order to ensure that Zion Williamson gets a chance to ensure that teams like Phoenix get an opportunity to be in the playoffs for the first time ever. But the reality, or not ever, but the first time in a long time. But, you know, they're going to be facing the very best opponents in the league. I mean, I'm not sure... The reason why the, the Pelicans had a very good chance of being able to get past the Memphis Grizzlies for the eighth seed in the Western Conference was because they had a very weak strength of schedule. That's not going to be the case. Now their eight opponents are going to be probably high-quality opponents because they're all going to be teams in the playoff picture. And so I'm just not sure what the purpose of having these eight games is if, you, if the reality is most of these teams are going to be assured uh, of the spot that they were going to be going into the playoffs in the first place. It's not, it's not like you're really creating additional opportunities for Phoenix or Washington to get into the playoffs. They're going to be competing against the very best teams in the league. Chances are they're not going to be able to win out those eight games and be able to assure themselves of a sixth or seventh seed or even an eighth seed. So I'm just, I'm not sure what the point of this is other than to recoup money. And so that's why I have a little bit of concern about it. At the same time, like I said, though, I'm excited to see what these teams do in this situation. It's just, it's so unusual. We've never seen anything like this. And I know that's stating the obvious, but the reality is it's going to be very, very different just from the, the feel of the game being in this, in this facility to the potential of not having crowd noise to not actually seeing fans in the audience and things of that sort. It's going to be a very, very different scenario than what we normally think of when we think of NBA basketball game. Now, do you think that players want to play? Or do you think that like this is more of a money grab, writes Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, he works for the owners, it's more of an issue of money? Or, or do you think like the players are like, yeah, like we actually want to play? I, I think of the teams that are being invited, like you look at the, the Pelicans, Wizards, maybe not the Wizards so much because they probably have the biggest hill to climb just to get into the playoffs. At the very least, they're getting an opportunity to play. But I mean, if they're not guaranteed to play, look at the recent comments from uh, you know Damian Lillard. You know, if they're not competing for a legitimate playoff spot, just go out and play regular season games for no reason. Doesn't make much sense. They're risking their livelihood. They're risking their health. They're risking everything. And so it doesn't you know it doesn't behoove them to actually participate in these things. But if there's a chance to actually compete and get into the playoffs, even if it's a restructured system, and maybe somehow, if they're healthy, if they're able to get you know a little bit deeper in the playoffs. I mean, you look at Portland, they were in the Western Conference Finals last year, and now all of a sudden, they see themselves currently out of a playoff spot, but if the season resumes the way we expect it to, at least the way the plan is laid out, they're going to have a chance to compete for a playoff spot. They might be able to upset some teams like the Thunder or maybe even the Clippers. Who knows? I mean, they're a good, deep team with a lot of high-potent scores there, and C.J. McCollum and, and, and Lillard. So, I mean, they might be able to make some noise there. So, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the, the players all want to play. I feel like uh, if they have an opportunity to actually advance, legitimately advance in the playoffs, then they're certainly going to be more emotionally invested in it. I understand also why the decision was made to leave out those lottery-bound teams like the Golden State Warriors or the Knicks or the Bulls, et cetera, that weren't going to be having – they didn't have a realistic chance of advancing in the postseason because that's an unnecessary risk. And so I, I think that those players are probably – realized long ago that their seasons were over and that they didn't want to play but for the guys that are going to be involved in those 22 teams I think they'll be emotionally invested in it to be honest with you I think that they're going to be really excited to be on the floor just for the competitive spirit I mean sure there's going to be some discomforting moments there when they're not quite you know they haven't played in months they haven't had access to facilities for a long time um, they haven't felt like the actual competition of the NBA style play in a while so it's going to be very unusual for them. But at the same time, I think that they'll get into it very quickly and they'll probably be excited for the opportunity. So that that was that's why I think the line of thinking anyway. Now, and you, you mentioned, too, that you have uh, been to the complex that these guys are going to be playing at. So can you just kind of put an image in everybody's in everybody's mind? How does it differ from a regular NBA arena where they're going to be playing? Well, it's much smaller, first and foremost, that they're... 
main priority isn't necessarily accommodating fans. It's uh, when they when they talk about the ESPN Wide World of Sports, they have multiple facilities where you can play baseball, soccer. They've hosted all of these different sports there, volleyball, etc. The HP Pavilion, which is used for the basketball tournaments necessarily, is you know, has multiple courts. Now, they can change all the configuration, as we've heard in the proposed plan. Like Teams will be able to bring in their home floors, their hardwood floors, so that they can get a little bit more of the a, a custom feel that they're, they're used to. So that's going to be changed around a little bit. As far as the arena itself, it's there's two floors, and as in the past they've had tournaments where they've had games being played upstairs and downstairs on multiple courts. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case now because of television purposes. My thought is that they probably limited to just one game being played at one time, although this facility can host multiple games at the same time. So that's a, a consideration. And again, not much as far as stands are concerned. It could only accommodate probably, I'm guessing here, but I would say probably somewhere around 5,000 fans at most. And I, obviously, they're not going to be any fans, but I'm just thinking as far as traveling parties, as far as the other teams are concerned that might be in attendance while games are being played, media if they're eventually allowed into the facility. Um, there is some room there for them. And then, you know, it's, it has everything else that you might want. It has bathrooms, it has concession stands, has a media workroom. Uh, it has, I, I don't know if it actually has locker rooms. Because <laughs> I'm, talking, I'm sorry? It doesn't have locker rooms? I don't think so. I don't think so because in the past, like these players have been able to change in their respective hotels or resorts and any, anything in the area and then travel by bus to the facility. Uh, and I would assume that would probably be the case. Now, they might be able to change things around again. You could probably put up temporary walls or things of that sort, but I don't think it had showers. I, I really, I wasn't about, like when I covered those games, they didn't have locker room access because uh, it just wasn't something that was allowed. And again, they may not even have locker rooms, but they, they might have to set up something temporarily, uh, or if not, they might be able to arrange for something else on that campus. Because again, you have that HP Pavilion is where the basketball would actually be played, but they have other facilities there, baseball field, et cetera, where they might have showers and locker rooms available to the players. Now, also, this is interesting, too, because, right, you're in Florida already, right, in Miami, and it's it's a state that has opened back up. So how do you kind of think it's going to go from a corona perspective? Because it's not like this is going to be in New York where, you know, the infection rate has been a lot higher. How, how, how are things in kind of the state of Florida, and how do you feel that it will go bringing all these people there? Well, South Florida is actually uh, pretty bad as far as overall uh, positive tests and, and a number of reported cases. Um, it's, it's been... Um, pretty high of late, and I think testing has not been as widespread as they'd like. And uh, as far as the overall testing is for the, the league and for the games, I'm, I'm not sure how that would play out, but Orlando has been a relatively low figure amount as far as overall cases reported. Um, I, you know, Florida is a huge state, a very, very long state, and so what happens in Miami isn't the same thing as what would happen in Orlando. And again, thanks you know, to the ESPN zone being on this Walt Disney campus, it is fairly sequestered from the rest of you know, the general society and things of that sort. They would have resorts available at Disney World where players could stay full time. And I'm sure they'd have to regulate who prepares food, who handles you know, room cleaning and things of this sort. But uh, there, there, there is a way of keeping players sequestered now. I'm not sure if they're going to be limiting family members, if they're going to be allowing them to travel with their players and things of that sort. But as far as Florida is concerned, South Florida is worse than the rest of the state, although there are a number of places up north that are, you know, they may not have the full testing or maybe those numbers aren't 100% accurate as far as what's been reported for a number of cases. But uh, Orlando has been, I think, on the more positive end as far as not having so many repaired cases. Now, from uh, the Miami Heat's perspective, uh, I think the players are allowed to go in their, their facilities now, am I correct? That that's Players are allowed to go in their facilities? Oh, yes. Uh, they've been conducting individual workouts for, I think, three weeks now. Um, they've been allowed to go there and, you know, one-on-one -on -one with one assistant coach, uh, they, they, they shoot, they work out, and, and then they just, you know, they, they have, uh, everybody's maintaining social distancing and, and of course, gloves and, and, uh, and masks at all times. Now, do you think this layoff, because, you know, the NBA ended abruptly, do you think this helps or hurts the Heat? 
Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, maybe that's not the, the, the easiest answer, but uh, as far as how it helps them, you know, they were they were kind of free falling a little bit towards the the hiatus uh, when when the season finally ended or was cut short because they had been playing defense pretty badly. Uh, they had had some players that were injured, and uh, they had made some trades at the trade deadline to acquire a couple of players and, and then change their roster around. And so their defense in particular was struggling. They had been blowing huge leads to inferior teams. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to anticipate because for one, I think the heat in general, they just, they take such pride in conditioning and being at, at the best fitness levels possible. And so they've, probably more than other teams around the league probably been able to maintain. I think they were among the first. So I remember the, the, the league, I mean, when the, the season ended on what was it, March 11th, uh, I, I think the, the Heat were among the first to immediately initiate Zoom workouts and things of that sort. And so, it, you know, we had a media call, I think like five or six days later the following week, and they had already been holding these Zoom workouts with players where they just wanted to make sure that everybody was staying in touch and doing whatever possible to continue to work out. And, and then Jimmy Butler, as a teammate, was able to purchase hoops for all of the players. Now, that's, you know, they may not be able to set them up, some some of the younger players or maybe the players that don't make enough money. They, they you know, they live in condos or things of that sort. They don't have the ability to just set up a hoop wherever they want. But at the very least fitness is and, and always going to be a priority for the team and its players. So I feel like they would probably be a little bit more along, further along than most teams because I think they're in better shape overall. And again, they've been they've had access to their facility longer than most players have. They generally run a pretty intense training camp. And if the proposed schedule plays out the way we expect it to, that he will have some weeks there to have like a mini camp and things of that sort. I know that Eric Spolstra is going to push those players intensely. So they'll be ready to go. And then at the same time, those players that were injured are going to be able to come back and, and be at full strength. So you had guys like Myers Leonard, who was in the starting lineup, Tyler Hero, who was a, a, a contributor off the bench. You know, Jimmy Butler had been nursing various sore injuries over the course of the season. He'll be at full strength too. And so with that in mind, the Heat team seems like they're pretty well equipped to make a, a deep run in the playoffs. So I, I'd have to skew towards the more positive end and that I think the Heat will probably take great advantage of the layoff. But I'm also a little concerned to see whether or not they can correct whatever problems they were showing towards the end of the season. Now, when you talk about, you know, the Heat being known for their uh, workouts, like, like, what do they exactly do? Can you give us something like, like, what exactly do they do that, you know, that pushes them so harder than maybe what other NBA teams do? Well, they are a, a huge component of regular fat, uh, body fat testing. Like even during the season, they ensure that their players are at a minimum weight. I mean, there have been a number of cases over the course. I Pat Riley's tenure in particular, when he joined the team in 1995, he instituted these changes, and they've been there with the team for the past 25 years. They they make sure that players are eating well. Every player who has come through Miami has lost weight. I mean, Kelly Olynyk. When he first joined the team a few years ago, it's not like he was particularly obese or out of shape or anything like that, but he came to Miami and he immediately lost like 25 pounds. They made sure he had the right diet. They made sure that they train regularly. And their workouts are incredibly intense. Like they have regular practices even during the regular season. If, if you hear 29 other coaches gripe about the fact that they don't get enough court time, enough practice time, Miami is probably the 30th team on the outside saying, well, we'll do what we can, and they'll ensure that their players get a significant you know, time to train and things of that sort. Now, that works as a detriment. Again, you've seen a number of ankle injuries over the course of the last few seasons, um, and it's just sometimes it almost seems like they push their players a little too hard, but they, they're the first to say that the Miami system – is not for everybody. I mean, that's a quote, a common quote from Eric Spolstra, and that you have to go there. You have to be in love with the work ethic. You have to be in love with constantly pushing yourself and training yourself and wanting to get to that next level. And so, when it comes to their conditioning level, they take great pride in being able to be the best team in shape in the, in the best shape around the league. Their conditioning test is pretty legendary. No one's ever really revealed exactly what it is. For whatever reason, players don't really talk about it. But it seems to be, again, very, very 
arduous and that players like worry about this for weeks before training camp even starts. They go through this conditioning test. They have to pass it. If they don't, they face suspension. We saw that earlier in the season with guys like James Johnson and Dion Waiters and others. So they they really do put an emphasis on training and conditioning above all else. And I, I'm sure that's still been the case. I, I mean, if they're going to be players who are going to go back into training camp around the league, maybe a little lazy, maybe a little heavier than they would have liked, not not as sharp, Miami is not going to be that team. They, they're going to be ensuring that their guys have been pushed throughout this whole time and that they're still at the same kind of shape. I, I would imagine that players, they may not be in what you call you know, NBA game-ready shape, but they're going to be in pretty good shape, world-class shape regardless. Now, it's interesting, too, that you mentioned kind of that culture of Miami. And I think it's really interesting, and not to get too off topic, but I, I feel like in terms of LeBron James, I feel like a lot of people talk about the best he ever was at his career was during that time in Miami. Is that what you mean by that Miami culture that's able to bring out the best like guys as great as LeBron? Yeah, I mean, that's it's part of it. It's also the fact that LeBron was you know a great player uh, surrounded by the best quality teammates he'd ever had. If you can consider what he was experiencing during the first seven years that he was in Cleveland, those teams weren't particularly good or deep. Um, and he was also just reaching his peak as far as his, his physical maturity is concerned. Uh, you know, they were, they were able to get him at the best four years of his, of his physical peak where, you know, now he's towards the, the tail end of his physical peak. And uh, when he was there in the first seven years in Cleveland, he was still growing into it from a high school player. I mean, we kind of, we kind of tend to assume that LeBron has been a physical peak for the past 20 years or something close to <laughs> But uh, the reality is that he just the best four year window was during his tenure in Miami. But to Eric Spolstra and the training staff's credit, they were able to get him and put him in a position to succeed where they realized, look, you have to be able to get into the low post more, something he had been unwilling to do in Cleveland because he, he felt like that wear and tear would hurt him and, and impact him negatively. But he also was able to expand his shooting range a little bit in Miami prior to what he had done, better than what he had done in Cleveland. And, and, you know, of course, now in his second stint in Cleveland and what he's seen from him in Los Angeles, he's become a better overall shooter. But that wasn't really the strength of his game until he got to Miami. He was more of a, a guy who could just dominate and get to the rim whenever he wanted. But in Miami, they recognized, look, you need to do things a little differently. You need to be able to change that up because at some point they're going to be able to limit your ability to get to the rim. You need to have that that shooting as a legitimate weapon so that he could free up everything else for you and for everybody on your team. Now I do have to ask you about Jimmy Butler. So when you talk about like the Miami lifestyle, Jimmy Butler's like kind of emphasizes that like hardcore. He he's a he's, he's the guy. He's gonna be the first one and the last one out. Like he's the type of guy like come on, coach, let's run more. Like you just talk about that fit and why it works so well with Jimmy Butler in the Heat. Well, I, I've, I've been talking about that fit for years. I remember even years ago when he was still in Minnesota, his first season, well, his only season in Minnesota, but he actually came to a, a game when I was in Orlando and covering the team there. Um, you know, I talked to him about his partnership with Andrew Wiggins and what that was like. And the one thing he kept emphasizing more and more and more was just work. You have to work hard. You have to continue to work and, and just be able to, to you know, take your natural talent and have that work sharpen it to the point where you reach your full potential. And I'm just listening to him, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this sounds like everything we've ever heard from every player who's come to Miami system. It's just this incredible love of the work. And so for Jimmy, you know, I think a lot of a lot of what we've heard over the last few years is inability to get along with teammates and things of that sort. It's because those teammates weren't willing to put in the same kind of work. And that's that's where it is with, with Jimmy is you look at his past and everything that he's accomplished is that, you know, he was able to, he wasn't a highly recruited player at a high school. Uh, he had to push his way just to get a scholarship at Marquette. And at, at Marquette, he had to push himself just to be eventually drafted. Uh, you know, he wasn't a high draft pick. And when he was on that team with Derek Rose and Joaquin Noah and Lou Alden and all those players, he wasn't a guy who was getting a lot of minutes. He worked for everything that he's achieved. And for him, that's that's just what you do. You just have to continue to work harder. And, and so, you know, over the course of his career, he has alienated other players because they're just not willing to put in that same level of work. And I think that's the case in Minnesota where you saw guys like Carl Anthony Townsend and maybe even Wiggins who weren't willing to, to work as hard in order to help reach their full potential. It happened in Philadelphia, too. And I think now at Miami, with everybody that's on that roster, 
they're so committed to the work that he's finally at ease. He's finally happy with, with the roster that's been assembled around him because they're all so committed to that same level of work as he is. And, and so he's, he's found the right home for him. It's something that Dwayne Wade told him when they were teammates briefly in Chicago. And, and it's remained true ever since that, he, you know, this is the right place for him. And that's a big part of it, too, is that he got a chance to choose coming to Miami. He, he, he resigned in Chicago and then he was traded to Minnesota. That was not his choice. And then he was traded to Philadelphia, again, not his choice. But as a free agent, he was able to sign in Miami because that's the place he wanted to be. It was the right fit culturally. It was the right fit as far as his talents are concerned and the rest of the, the roster. And, and I think it's just we've seen that evidence over the course of the, the first few months of the season. I've been in that locker room. I've talked to those guys. There is a general chemistry there that I have not seen in other locker rooms and other teams. And, and so they really do get along with each other. This is not... Jimmy being a jerk and, and pushing guys that don't want to be pushed, like we saw in Minnesota and Philadelphia, he fits there on a very, very comfortable level with everybody, and they appreciate his dedication. They, they, they have a natural hierarchy that's been established there now with Jimmy as your quote unquote alpha personality, and then guys like Bam and Abayo who are an all star this year, they kind of just understand how to play off Jimmy. Goran Dragic as a veteran knows how to play off of Jimmy, and, and you know just. Everybody's kind of found their footing really, really comfortably, and there's a, a good chemistry in that locker that I have not seen elsewhere. Now, when you so so, you think that maybe why? Because I, I feel like this is kind of the best basketball that Jimmy's ever played. Do you think part of it he's at ease now that he's like I can I can count that I know the the guy uh, right next to me he's going to be working as hard as I am, and he's yeah, kind of yeah. I, I, I don't doubt that at all. I, I feel like. You know, one of the things that he did earlier in the season was not be as aggressive a scorer uh, because he just he wanted to make sure that everybody got touches, and so that kind of created an almost instant vibe of him being a very selfless player, where he just wanted to ensure that everybody else got their touches and got their opportunities to score. Knowing, and he said it like I don't know if this is true or not, but he, he's always said, uh, at least this season, that Bam has been the team's best player. That might just be trying to hype Bam up a little bit, but it's worked because now Bam feels much more comfortable with his scoring opportunities, with his ability to do so many little things that kind of go unnoticed. Like he's a great defensive player, but he's also a good playmaker. And then Jimmy has helped him kind of reach the next level of his evolution. So I feel like he's really just, you know, he is playing very good basketball, but if you look at his offensive numbers, they're pretty bad, actually. His shooting has been pretty woeful for most of the season. Now, again, I attribute most of that to lingering injury issues, but he just hasn't needed to be as aggressive a scorer. He can still get to the rim whenever he wants to, and he can still draw fouls more than anybody else, almost anybody else in the league. He, I think he's second to James Harden as far as his free throw rate is concerned. But, um, you know, he just hasn't been shooting as well as possible, but he's always been an underrated playmaker throughout his career, and he's showing that kind of versatility as an offensive player, this season, as a defensive player, he's been great. But you have other guys on this team who are committed to defense, and it certainly helps when you have the kind of versatility of a Bam and a Bio to help defensively. Like I mean, they're just a really good tandem of guys that can switch, pick up number uh, number of players. If there's a pick and roll situation, Bam can handle both the ball handler and the big. So it, it's really helped to kind of find that right fit around him. And talk about like the kind of the breakout performance of Bam because Bam was a guy that. That I don't feel a lot of people saw coming, and then he's ended up making himself into an all-star. I believe he was undrafted, too. You just kind of talk about his development and him just kind of coming out of nowhere and being one of the better players in the league. Well, he was he was a lottery pick, but he was an unexpected one. Like, I remember when, when Bam was taken, he was not that high on best draft boards. I think a lot of people kind of had him in the 20 to 25 range, and then uh, the Heat selected him 13th, and I remember doing a show on that day and thinking, man, this is, this is out of the blue. We didn't really see this coming. And then we start to see some grainy workout footage of him putting up shots and things of that sort. Now, his acquisition was also a weird one in the day. They had just resigned Hassan Whiteside as a free agent. Um, they, they, you know, they would eventually resign him as a free agent because they drafted Bam in June, and then they, they resigned Hassan in July, early July. They also signed Kelly Olynyk as a free agent that same July. So now all of a sudden they have two centers, but they just drafted one. I wasn't quite sure what the plan was, but they saw something in Bam that most people, if not everybody else around the league, just didn't see. And so he was behind Hassan Whiteside in the depth chart. Whiteside was a problem that he was a little limited and much more of a, a slower 
pace speed, but when Bam did play, and there were instances there where he just was phenomenal. Like, like you could see the ball handling ability. You could see the athleticism. His versatility on defense, even as a rookie, that was pretty evident. I remember one one time in particular where he flashed out to the perimeter and to block a, 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 a LaMarcus Aldridge shot. And, you know, LaMarcus has that huge, he has that, that high release there on his jump shot, and Bam was still able to get it and block it. And then in a game later on that month, he was able to do the same thing and shut down Steph Curry on the perimeter just because he was able to keep his feet and guard him so well. So those flashes were certainly evident. He just wasn't getting the same playing time because Hassan was there, because Olenek was there. But then as Hassan got hurt last season, uh, then Bam started getting more opportunities as a starter. He just became much more comfortable in his role. And the thing with Adebayo is that he doesn't put up huge numbers. He's not He's still not entirely comfortable as a scorer. He doesn't not. He has a good jumper, but he doesn't feel comfortable taking that jumper regularly. And so now, what do you think is the bigger reason for Miami's success? Do you think it's like the signing of a guy like Jimmy Butler, uh, the play of guys like Tyler Hero who have kind of come out as rookies and able to make an impact, or like the breakout performance of a Bam? Or do you think it's just a mesh of all of it coming together? Because coming into the year, a lot of people did not think they'd be in a position where they'd be the fourth seed in the East. Yeah, I'd have to say it's a combination. I know that's kind of a compound, but it's just the reality is that, that Jimmy has helped, but none of that matters if Bam doesn't take a leap. And then the two of them together don't make enough to translate into the fourth seed without the kind of performance you've gotten from Tyler Hero and Kendrick Dunn as rookies. And you can't overlook Duncan Robinson. He is such a useful weapon offensively because of his incredible shooting. Like, that's something that nobody saw coming. Duncan was a good shooter and a guy who could occasionally get to the rim, but he wasn't used that same way last season. You know, when he was a rookie, an undrafted rookie out of Michigan, he spent most of his time either at the D-League, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the, the, the D-League in, in Sioux Falls or in, uh, in Miami on the bench. And now all of a sudden, he's just become a guy who was one of the top shooters in the NBA. Like, his ability to space the floor and to get that shot off quickly, that's a testament to the incredible work that he's done. And it really is. Like, he is just – Miami has been able to utilize, like, the same kind of plays that, that Ray Allen used during his time here as far as being able to get open, coming off of multiple screens. They did it later on with Wayne Ellington where he had his, the best years of his career here in Miami. And now Duncan Robinson has utilized that same kind of offensive package where he just comes off of multiple screens, he's constantly running, kind of like a J.J. Redick or a Reggie Miller, even going back a little bit further. And and, and that Robinson just gets open, and he, he doesn't need any time. He barely needs any time to get that shot off. And more often than not, he's been able to knock it down at a pretty high rate. And so that's that's the strength of his game. And then with him opening up the floor so much, it allows guys to get to the rim. A guy like Kendrick Dunn, who doesn't have to rely on his three-point shot a lot, he can get to the rim much more easily. Bam can do most of his work in the paint. Jimmy can get to the paint and draw a foul or get to the bucket. I mean, all of these players are kind of thriving as a result of everybody kind of working well. You really can't even overlook a guy like Myers Leonard. Like, he just seems to be a great fit in Miami because of his ability to space the floor and pull down rebounds. He's a big body. He's not a great defensive player because he's a little too slow for more versatile and quicker bigs. But for what he does offensively, he's really helped Miami kind of just unlock their full potential. Now... During the trade deadline, there was a lot of talk, right? Miami's, like, kind of one player away. Like, can they really be in that top echelon of the East where Milwaukee is and actually compete with the Bucks? And then they make the move trading Winslow away from Andre Godagla. How do you think that move helps them in terms of getting them closer to Milwaukee? Because that's the goal. They want to win the East, obviously, and they want to compete for a championship. Well, I think they were just at a point where they were frustrated with Justice Winslow. The, the Winslow was perfect for Miami in the sense that he was also a really great, versatile defender, a guy who could guard one through five. And he was also a pretty underrated playmaker. Like, you, you see him playing mostly the, the three, but in Miami, he was supposed to be a point guard. He was supposed to be the starting point guard until injuries kind of took him out of it. But there was some major disagreement between the training staff, the coaching staff, and Justice regarding the extent of his injury where he expected you know he didn't want to rush back out there and risk injuring his back even further and Miami's coaching staff was kind of like frustrated because they thought he needed to be out there in order to prove that he could be a quality playmaker and he's just been awarded a contract there's there's been a lot of frustration with players that they've given contracts to from Dion to James Johnson and now Justice where they didn't think that they were living up to their potential and they kind of took the, the money and ran, so to speak, where they just didn't really fulfill the promise of what they were supposed to be as players. 
and so that's why they traded Winslow away. But as far as Iguodala is concerned, you know, him and Crowder together are two versatile defenders, guys who can stretch the floor somewhat. In Iguodala's case, he's a guy who brings championship experience, and that's something that was lacking on this team. Without you know, nobody on that team has had championship experience, and so that's why you need a guy like Iguodala to be able to show the younger players like Nunn, like Robinson, what it takes to go in a deep playoff run. You know, Jimmy's been there. Myers Leonard's been there. That's pretty much it. Nobody else on that roster really has that kind of experience. But now they do with Iguodala and Crowder. Now, you kind of mentioned that maybe uh, Miami, the organization, can make it a little bit uncomfortable if they feel like you took the bag and uh, ran away. Is is that what you're alluding to there with with guys like Deion Waiters, James Johnson? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, there were some concerns that Deion wasn't fully committed, that Justice was going to create a problem in the locker room there. And they just they didn't they, they made it clear that this season that they wouldn't they wouldn't suffer that kind of mentality anymore. There was this was with Jimmy there, having paid as much as they did for Butler, they knew that they couldn't afford to waste any time. And so if you're not fully on board with the goal of running a championship, they were gonna find a way to get rid of you. That's unfortunately what they did with Winslow. Now I wanna talk about Pat Riley because Pat Riley, he's the man. Uh he's got him for agents like LeBron to come, Chris Bosch, uh, Jimmy Butler recently. What do you think is the magic about Pat Riley, where it seems like everybody's scared of him? It's like when Pat Riley gets in a room with your guy, you're like, oh, my God, what is going to happen? What is so special about Pat? Well, there's the, the start of it is the reputation um, that you know he's had incredible success, and that means something. You can't just go and meet a top-tier free agent and, and talk like you know where you're coming from if you haven't actually experienced it. Between Riley being able to win in Los Angeles as a player and as a coach and executive to be able to do the same thing in New York albeit you know not not being able to win a championship there but then in Miami as a player I mean as a, as a coach and an executive he's brought winning teams there and that matters to, to players it's it's you know you have to be able to back up their reputation now he's also perhaps the most gifted motivator in NBA history if not the most certainly up there. I mean, I've talked to players before about what it's like to factor Riley. They're all mesmerized by him. Like, he's still, even at almost 80 years of age, still able to talk to them and get them to run through a wall for them. Like, everybody that has played for this organization talks about Riley and his, his ability to get you fired up, to get you to want to play above any level that you've reached. So I think that's a huge factor there is that he, he just, you feel energized in talking to Riley. And then the part that gets overlooked mostly is that he is very good and loyal to, to players in the sense that he, he's able to kind of connect with them on a very human level, and that means a lot. Like a lot of people, maybe in New York in particular, they probably wouldn't think so after the Pat the Rat moniker, but he is able to, you know, he just connects with players on a very human level, and they appreciate that. Like one of the things that, I, you know, again, gets overlooked is that he's able to kind of connect with them, talk to them about their families, talk to them about issues at large, about the world in general. And they just, they're able to just kind of sit there for hours and talk to Riley and he's available to them. And that's, that means something that's special to them. And so I feel like you put all this together, the fact that he is a hard nosed guy and he settles it. Like, I mean, he, he, you know, he goes into a meeting and he'll tell you, look, we're going to push you. We're going to push you like you've never been pushed and we're going to work your ass off. And players love it. Somehow they come out and they go, yeah, that's exactly what I needed. This is what I wanted to hear in every other team I've been on. And, and as long as it generates success, which you know Miami's proven track record shows that it does, it, that that's a strong appealing factor for them to come to Miami. And so, I mean, Miami consistently gets a meeting with other players. Even if it's a Kevin Durant or a Gordon Hayward and they choose to sign elsewhere, Miami consistently gets those meetings with players because of the Riley factor, because – if you're gonna take, if he's gonna take the time to meet with you, it's because he's gonna tell you something that you want to hear and need to hear to some degree. Even the Marcus Aldrich, he's a, a curious free agent case that met with Pat Riley. And Pat Riley, he did not have any kind of cap space whatsoever. Lamarcus still took the meeting with Riley, and one thing that Riley told Aldrich was, "Look, sign where it's best for you. Make the decision for you to sign where you're your happiest and where your priority is." And 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 for Aldrich, that was winning. And so he chose to take less money to sign in San Antonio than he would have gotten with Phoenix 
knowing that you know Miami had no option for really re-signing him at that point. So that was that was a phenomenal meeting and just kind of part of the lore of Riley is that he's able to connect with players and, and talk to them at the level that they appreciate that kind of honesty and loyalty that they really feel is lacking. I mean, you know, you've heard players talk about it hundreds of times. The the, the you know the motto that the, the NBA is a business. Well, I mean, with my with Miami and with Riley, it doesn't feel as much of a business when you're meeting one on one with a guy like him with that kind of deep history and the connection to the game and to the players. Now, is it true that when he met with LeBron, that he uh, he dropped all his rings in front of LeBron and said, "Is is that true?" Yeah, 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 that really did happen. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's just you know that was what LeBron needed at that point in time. You know, it was seven years of frustration in Cleveland. They weren't going to be able to get past that deep team in Boston. And so Riley knew right away, he's like, look, you want to win? This is the place for you. We know how to do it. And I mean, I, I recently did a show kind of looking at what would happen if LeBron hadn't come here. And him and Dwayne were very, very close to signing in Chicago. And obviously, that was a, a good Chicago team with Derrick Rose, with you know, Hakeem Noah, and all those other players. And, and so they had the ability to sign there. But for Dwayne in particular, he was comfortable in Miami. He'd been there. He knew the coaching staff. He knew that they were capable of getting the most out of any player. And then, you know, LeBron just he knew he could win. There was a proven track record of winning. And you look at the things that happened in Cleveland after LeBron went back in 2014. He instituted a lot of those same changes. There were cultural changes that needed to be done. I mean, winning culture sounds like it's propaganda or PR. But there is a winning culture in Miami, and everybody talks about it. On top of that, there's also a family culture that often gets overlooked. There are people that are part of this organization that have been part of this organization for decades. There is stability here that you won't find around the league, and that matters to players. And so to LeBron, he saw that there was that stability here. And when you think about his, his the first seven years of his career, we had all these different coaches and coaching staffs and players were getting turned over. That wasn't the case here. It was stable. They were proven winners, and they had a, a track record of being able to consistently get the most out of their players. And they laid out a great plan, and yeah, the rings were part of it, saying, look, you want to win? You want to win? This is how we do it. Now, can you, can you just paint this picture a little bit more so LeBron walks in the room? Does Riley just have the rings on the table? Does he? <laughs> <laughs> Supposedly, he had like a little, uh, a little bag or something like that with all of his seven rings laid out. And he just kind of threw them out on the table, just scattered them across there, kind of like uh, like dye or something like that, and just kind of laid them out. And just it makes an impression, you know. <laughs> you haven't seen a championship ring before, and uh, it kind of stands out. <laughs> I could love LeBron's like, whoa, okay, this is a little bit different from Cleveland. Just just a little, yeah. just a little bit. Now, what what I do want to ask you this is, you also talk about kind of how revered Pat Riley is. Like, can you just talk about other some of the stuff? Like, what are some stuff people say about him? Like, when you talk to players? Like, like, like what are words they use when they describe Pat Riley? They're, they're, they're kind of in awe of him. And, you know, these are NBA players. They, they meet celebrities all the time around every kind of field of entertainment and industry. Uh, they're, they're not often impressed by much. But Riley still makes an incredible impact up there. And, and you know, sometimes... Like he just like the way he talks to them and tells them stories about his own experiences and, and again about things that are happening in the world that he's experienced in his years and, and those those kinds of stories they just resonate with players in a way and, and again I, mean, I remember hearing a podcast uh, with Sean Marks when he took the job in Brooklyn and he was a former Heat player and you know he didn't spend much time in Miami but the things that he he learned from Riley as being a, as far as being an executive which is being able to connect on a very human level. Uh, you know, again, asking you about your kids, your wife, you know, oh, remembering your kids' names and their birthdays and things that's so little things, little details like that that matter. You know, we, we had to think of coming into a workplace and, you know, you kind of try to avoid your boss or try to avoid some coworkers and you're not sure what you're getting. In Miami, that's not the case. And it very much does feel like a family type environment and they want to make sure that they connect with players. And, and so, Players love that spirit. They love that kind of connection. Even Solomon Hill recently, uh, right before he, the, the hiatus, uh, you know, he had just joined the team in February at the trade deadline. And I asked him about it. He's like, man, I've been so impressed with everybody. Just, you know, this is a family. There have been people here that have been here so long. And just, and, you know, Pat Riley is part of that culture. He's just created that culture of being a, a very close-knit family. And that means a lot to me. You know, he's had a career where he's been from Indiana and New Orleans. He hasn't had that kind of stability. Now all of a sudden he's in Miami and he certainly sees what that's like and he was very impressed by it. 
Now, what I what I do want to ask you too is uh, Eric Spolstra. I, I feel like Eric Spolstra is still one of the most underrated coaches in the NBA. I mean, he's been the multiple finals uh, NBA championship coach. I mean, how long has he been coaching? It's a, easily been a decade plus. Uh, why uh, do 2008 was his first season as the head coach? Okay, so basically a decade now, right? So, yeah. uh, why do you think Eric Spolstra is so underrated? Like, I he's like the best coach that nobody talks about. <laughs> Players and coaches around the league recognize what Spolster is able to do. But, you know, one, Riley cast a huge shadow the way that uh, Riley took over the team and, and then in 2008 just said, nope, I'm handing it over to Spolster. Uh, I, I feel like maybe nobody really expected much out of Spolster. He was, you know, the fact that he's kind of worked so hard to get to this position in the first place, he, it's not like he proved himself as a player. There wasn't a lot of he wasn't a head coach at a major college team or anything like that. All of a sudden, he was just he was an assistant coach who had done his time, and he just put in the work. You know, obviously, the story of him coming up as a video coordinator and just spending time, years and years, putting in the, the, the mileage, working, grinding, and then getting to that position, I guess maybe you kind of overlook a little bit. Again, there's there's not a lot of like cachet to his name because he's, just, he's not a big name. He's not like a, a, you know, hiring a Mike Krzyzewski or something like that. Uh, you know, and, and so... The first two years in, in Miami, you know, he got the most out of Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade, again, a lot of people forget this, was playing at an MVP-type level, and that's because of Spolstra getting the most out of him and connecting with Wade. He was the assistant coach that was responsible for helping Dwayne reach another level in Miami, and so he was he was Dwayne's guy. So when when Spolstra was hired as the head coach, Dwayne signed off on it 100%. He knew he knew that, that Spol was his guy, and he was happy with that decision, and he felt comfortable was Spolster being the head coach of the team. But then you look at what happened in 2010 in getting LeBron and uh, and, and Chris Bosh, and, and I think a lot of people who want to be critical of Spolster say, well, he only won because he had great players, because he had two all-time greats in Dwayne, and I don't know, Chris Bosh and LeBron. But, I mean, you know, it, it, every coach that reaches the championship level has to have great players on there. I don't know why Spolster gets kind of, you know, knocked for, for having great players on his team. He's just—he's been able to motivate guys. He's been able to connect with them. He's been able to get the most out of them here. He changes. He's versatile. I mean, a lot of people forget that Spolster was willing to go small ball before many other teams were and going with Chris Bosh at center. So he's—he's he's been innovative. He's been creative, and he's been successful. Hey, you mentioned Dwayne Wade. Why do why do people call it uh, Wade County for those uh, who who don't know? Run that by me again. I didn't hear that. When you talk about Dwayne Wade, they always call Miami Wade County. Why is that? Well, he was uh, officially, they changed officially in a proclamation from the Miami-Dade County uh, Commission. They actually proclaimed it Dwayne Wade County or Miami Wade County at some point. But I think it's just a play on names as far as Wade rhyming with Dade. Huh. Uh, but I think overall, it just speaks to Dwayne probably being the greatest athlete in South Florida history. Like, I think the only other player that comes close is Dan Marino. And as great an individual player as Marino was, he wasn't able to achieve the same kind of championship success that Dwayne did. And, and so Dwayne being drafted by Miami in 2003, immediately he made an impact as a rookie. By 2004, the team had changed so drastically because we recognized that there was a star in the making here that they were able to acquire Shaquille O'Neal and instantly put them in the championship conversation. Two years later, he delivered. You know, in 2006, he was the greatest player on earth for a brief run there and maybe even one of the greatest performances in finals history against the Dallas Mavericks. And he's been consistently good since then. I mean, he had one injury marred season, obviously, but he was again almost at an MVP level from 2008 to 2010 part of the big three era and it's just we've seen him grow we've seen him change uh his his polish with media his ability to connect as a parent as a husband all those things watching him grow as a player on and off the court as a person on and off the court resonates so much with he fans that they just i mean i would they recently had a, a celebration for his retirement ceremony and i'm not sure how aware you are of this but they spent three days doing this where they had different events during a three-day weekend, starting on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, you know, that was a huge turnout for each of those events. And he is, again, as beloved an NBA athlete as you'll find anywhere and the greatest athlete in South Florida. 
Now, how, how involved is he still with the organization? Like, how much is he around? Because I know he lives in Los Angeles now, and he's doing his thing with TNT. But, but, but how much is he around as, like, an ambassador for the Heat? He's not. He's not. Uh, you know, he is He's always watching games, and he is, he'll talk them up uh, on social media and things of that sort. But he, uh, he's, you know, he, he's still connected to Jimmy. They're good friends. And, of course, he knows a lot of the younger guys when he was here last year. But uh, he, he's not in the front office or anything like that. He's not making calls to Pat. I know he's also had some, some you know, he, he's hung out with Pat Riley and then Mickey Harris and the owner of the franchise. Uh, so that's good. But at the same time, he's just not connected on a, on a daily level. He's not a presence around the team as much. He's he, he made it clear he wanted to separate himself a little bit. He wanted to explore other opportunities. And being with his wife in Los Angeles, she's an actress and things, that's that's something he wanted to focus on moving forward. I would expect that role to change a little bit. I don't. He's never going to be a coach. I just don't see that part of him. Uh, I don't think he'd be an executive either. I just I don't see him being comfortable, uh, just being limited in that capacity. But he wants to talk about the league in general. Uh, I think that he, he'll, he'll just continue to root for the Heat and, and root for for Jimmy because again I think they have a close friendship. Now the Heat are the four seed. Uh... Inevitably, if they win their first-round series, they would play the Milwaukee Bucks. Do you think that the Heat are good enough to beat the Bucks in a seven-game series? <laughs> I've, uh, I've said this before. Uh, I, I really do believe that. I, I mean, I know the regular season doesn't matter. They've also been able to beat Milwaukee twice this season, and that's something no other team has done. I also think that they have the personnel for it, and, and partly why that trade was motivated to get big bodies, versatile defenders like Iguodala and Crowder, was to throw up a wall against Giannis, knowing that he is the fulcrum of Milwaukee's offense, that he makes everything go there. And so if you can keep Giannis out of the bucket area, out of the painted restricted area, then you limit what he can do. You have to force him to make plays for others, or you force him to rely on his outside shot, still isn't that consistent and and then you're kind of putting it on everybody else to kind of step up that's fine and I think they have a really really good team outside of Giannis but Giannis is an MVP for a reason and if you can limit what he does that makes it harder for everybody else to thrive as well and I think Miami legitimately has a good chance to compete with the Bucks. I thought this even for years even before they have the roster that's currently constructed Bam is Probably the prototype defender for a guy like Giannis. He's probably one of the few guys in the league as strong as Giannis, as quick as Giannis, and he can move his feet as well. So you can throw him as an individual defender, and he'll be able to hold his own against Adam Uh I also think that with all the other players that they have in this roster, like Crowder, like Iguodala, I have Butler, guys that are all versatile defenders, they can all kind of throw up that wall around him. We saw in the most recent victory in Milwaukee with Crowder, and, and Iguodala, and without Butler in the lineup, where they were just able to keep him away from his comfort zone, with keep him away from the rim, and, and just he, he wound up floundering like he couldn't do it. And, and I think Brooke Lopez had a huge shooting night from the perimeter, but uh, you know you kind of let Lopez take their shots if you can limit what Adam Cooper can do. So I really do think Miami has a strategy in place there. I think you know kind of similarly to what we've just seen recently from the Last Dance where you kind of have to figure out a way of, of limiting what Michael Jordan could do. That's the plan for Miami this year, was knowing that they had to limit what Giannis could do in the Eastern Conference, and that that was their clearest path to the finals, was being able to limit Milwaukee. And then from that point, you kind of take your chances against all the other good teams in the Eastern Conference. I think they can beat Philadelphia. I think they can beat Indiana. I think they can match up very well with Toronto. Toronto and Boston probably represent the most difficult matchups for Miami because they too, they have a pick-and-roll guard in Kemba Walker who can really stretch the floor very well, and he's been a dagger for Miami in the past. And, of course, they have enough versatility around them to kind of make things difficult for the Heat. Uh, and Toronto has some great depth. They've got some big bodies. They've got a championship experience. So those two teams, I think, are t- tougher matchups than Milwaukee. I could be wrong, and, and who knows what will happen with this hiatus and how it changes how teams play and things of that sort. But, but from the team that I saw in March before the season ended, I actually think that the Heat have a pretty good chance of knocking off Milwaukee. Okay, now my last question for you. This year, what has been your funniest slash most interesting story covering the team this year? Jimmy Butler's story, maybe it's a Pat Riley story, maybe it's Eric Spolster, maybe it's from a guy like Tyler Harrow. What's your funny slash most interesting story? Ooh, I, 
personally, and, and I think a lot of people will probably say this as well, is that I just the Chris Silva story. Uh, you know, he's not a guy that gets a lot of publicity, and if you know anything about it, you know, he's he's had an incredible journey from uh, a very you know not a war torn country, but a country that's been an economic demise for decades in Gabon in Africa, and he was a player. I mean, he didn't know anything about basketball. He never played basketball growing up, really. Uh, he just kind of was tall, was athletic, and had some kind of, you know, some ability to him athletically, but he just didn't have much polish. And then he was recruited to play basketball in high school. He played at a Catholic high school in New Jersey without being able to speak any English whatsoever. Uh, his, his only ability to connect with other classmates was through French, and then kind of pick up on sign language and things of that sort and be able to read uh, you know, people speaking in English. Uh, he, he was able to read their lips and kind of understand the language a little bit more. Somehow he wound up becoming a great high school player. He never had the experience of AAU or anything like that. And then he was able to get a scholarship to the University of South Carolina. And he wound up becoming one of the greatest defensive players there in the team's history. I know, a two-time All-SEC defensive player, a guy who carried that team to a number of wins. And then he wasn't, he wasn't drafted. And a lot of people just thought, well, he's a fluke, he doesn't, he's not polished enough. And then somehow Miami had such a great connection to Frank Martin, the head coach of the Gamecocks. And, uh, and they, he said, look, if you take this guy at your roster, you will not be regretted for one moment. And, and so I was able to talk to Chris. I talked to his mom when she was here briefly. They hadn't seen each other in years. Um, it was just it's a great story for a guy to be separated from his family in Africa, to not have any kind of experience being here in the United States, not knowing what basketball was like here in the States, and to somehow be able to carve out an NBA career. He's just, he's such a fluke. He, he's a one in a million chance, and he, yet still he, he's here working hard, and he's found the right team in Miami that appreciates his work ethic. Well, David, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'll always, whenever you want me on, I'll always be happy to join you in talking basketball. And once again, I want to thank David Ramil for coming on the podcast. And I thank all of you for tuning in to the 167th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.